Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, it's Glenn James. This message is being played at the start of all podcasts that Simo Interactive produces. It has come to my attention that there was a licensing issue with the music that we were using for our shows. And until that issue is resolved, and it might take a couple of weeks because I'm overseas at the moment, I've just decided out of an abundance of caution, I would stop using any music until we've resolved the issue. So if you are new to the podcast, you probably won't notice anything different. If it's not your first time, this is why there is no music in the episodes at this time. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. Growing up in Australia, for me anyway, it was like people would buy investment properties and I'd see local real estate agents and they would be selling people investment properties. Now, the weird thing was they were selling people in a local suburb an investment property that was in the same suburb. And I always thought it was fascinating that people would go and buy their first investment property, go and buy their second property, and it would be in the next street. It would be in a similar suburb. It would be in a similar location. And I always thought that was weird, even as like a late teen. And it was really timely. We got a question we're going to talk about today. Like, what is more risky? buying shares or buying an investment property. So it's a great discussion about risk, about diversification, and we will get into some trouble along the way. We can't do this episode without the help of Sphere Home Loans. The biggest myth out there in Moneyland is that you need to get a mortgage broker in the same suburb as where you live or the same suburb you're going to buy in. That's not the case. Sphere Home Loan help listeners all over Australia buy their first home, their second home, refinancing a home, investment lending. They help you wherever you are. It doesn't matter where the property is. Just search Sphere Home Loans or click the link in the show notes and they'll be able to help you wherever you are. Well, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jessica Brady. Welcome back, Jess. Thank you. My name's Glenn James. Let's get into it. Jess, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You were on last week with John and I. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. But we did realise, everyone, it was just too crowded with three people talking about stuff. So mm. we're not going to do a Q&A with three people again. That's just bad podcasting. Well, I can talk, so... Well, we all can. Mm. But anyway, I just want to follow in from my opening shout out to Fear Home Loans. And Beck actually wrote in just very recently and she said, so I'm a first home buyer. All your podcasts go on about getting a mortgage broker and I'm on board with this. However, how do you pick a mortgage broker? I've had recommendations from different people, so I have word of mouth recommendations. However, do you have to pick between them? How far can you talk to them without feeling you're wasting their time, but still getting the right deal? Where do you stand on this issue, Jess? Mm -hmm. Because you've got a professional services background. Mm -hmm. You'll talk to a prospective client. Mm -hmm. You know that it is your time, but that's part of the deal, like to have an initial chat. Mm-hmm. So there's two things here, the time-wasting thing, but also how do you get a good recommendation for a professional service? 
So I think Beck's done the right thing. Like she's asked people around her who are giving her great word of mouth recommendations, which is amazing and it's what you want because then Mm. you get a trusted friend to, you know, tell you about what they liked about that person or what the process was or why they enjoyed them, et cetera. And I think you do need to sort of date a few before you feel like you've found the right one for you. And I don't think any professional service person thinks that that's not a good thing Mm. because we want to work with people that want to work with us as well. And so we want you to feel like, yes, this is my person. Like they get me, they get what I'm looking for. And you should be asking them questions. Like what do they do differently? How are they set up that's differentiated from the other one down the road or whatever? And if you've got a specific need, drill into it. You're not wasting their time. You're trying to make sure it's a really good fit because you know if you ever take on someone that's not quite the right fit, mm. it just feels hard for them and for us. Mm. For me, I don't think it's any different whether it's mortgage broker, financial advisor, car mechanic, boat repair shop, I'm into them lately, um, hair, beauty, you mm. name it. Mm. It's like I need a service. I'm not sure. Everyone says that I should get a car mechanic and not service my own car because I'll get a better outcome. Mm-hmm. So my gut feeling is... And this is where maybe we do differ slightly and it's just the person that I am. Like if I talk to somebody that's being referred to me and I get that instant, yep, I vibe with this person, I don't check for another one because they've been vetted by a third party already Mm. and I vibe with them. Mm. So I'm like, well, yeah, let's do it. I think, well, maybe it's with financial advice which is sort of my background. Mm. I think also there's a lot of fear and trust issues. And so I think it's important for them to go and, you know, maybe even just hear the same story a few times to validate, oh, okay, this is what they all do or this is how mm. the process works, et cetera. But maybe that doesn't really need to happen with mortgage brokers. But yeah, what what I want is people to meet with me or I want to meet with people and feel like these are my mm. people yep. and get that good vibe and then carry on forward and hopefully it becomes a really beautiful long-term relationship because, mm. you know, you can see a broker once and never see them again. But I think good mortgage brokers actually should be part of the process ongoing because they should be reviewing your rates and making mm. sure that your, your rate's still good. So it's not just a one and done thing either. Totally. And I think you're on the right track, Beck. Uh, and I want to just finish here with two things. Number one, on the whole wasting time, like someone put a question in the Facebook group the other day, like, hey, I've engaged with a mortgage broker, basically... <laughs> I'm probably being a bit dramatic here, but there would be scenarios like this. Mm. The app, the pre-assessment applications in with the lender. Oh, should I go to the bank and see if I can get a better deal? Like once you commit to a professional service, respect them and the process. Mm. So I think there is that because a lot of brokers, if not all brokers, are paid by the lender. Yeah. So they are literally working, quote unquote, for free mm. until that loan settles. And the other thing is you're not wasting their time. Like I actually referred a good friend to a broker last week and said to the broker, hey, she's not in a space yet to buy, but she wants to learn more about sort of what you do and how you work and what might be possible for her in the future. So this isn't something that's like emergency is going to happen. Maybe won't even happen this year. Do you mind? And he was like, of course not, really happy to chat. So I think obviously it's broker to broker, but I think they're really happy to share information and tell you how the process works as well. And they don't see it as wasting time. Yeah. And the second point is on the website, sortyourmoneyout.com. And when you click get help to be referred to a mortgage broker or a financial advisor, one of the reasons that I do not have just a list of our preferred advisors and brokers on that page Mm -hmm. is because I want to know what you're after Mm -hmm. And then I want to say, look, based on what you've told me, 
I think this broker is going to be the most appropriate fit for you because I just don't want to have a list of professionals and have people just calling them when they're not really a fit. Mm. Where, you know, Sphere Home Loans, they're supporting the podcast now. They've got brokers. They're a good-sized team and they've got brokers that can help first home buyers. They've got brokers that can help refinances. They've got brokers that can help investors. And they've actually got a team dedicated to the podcast. Mm. And the reason everyone who gets their nose out of joint, why I delete other recommendations in the Facebook group is because we've had complaints from people getting bad experiences that they've been referred to, quote unquote, by me, but it's been someone else in the Facebook group and they've thought, oh, my millennial money told me about this. No, no, no. It was some random in Dubbo or something like that who recommended their broker who was not good. So that's why I've got a really strict policy in the Facebook group. And then also part of my strategy with uh, these professional services, I've got a good relationship with all our mortgage brokers on our panel, Mm. all our financial advisors. I know that life happens and we have a hiccup and all that stuff. It happens. Like I've shared on the podcast before that I've had a recent encounter with a professional service that they dropped the ball, they took responsibility and solved the problem. Mm. I know every single professional services company on my recommended panel, I know if there's a hiccup, they will sort it out. The power of relationships. Yeah. And that's it. Like we've had stuff where things don't go perfect and they may, someone may have emailed, oh, Glenn, we had this thing happen. I jump on the phone and I've said to the, the people, hey, did you guys drop the ball or was this unrealistic from the client? And they can tell me, no, we dropped the ball and they'll own it and fix it. So that's why my referral system is very tight because anyone that I send to these businesses, they really need, I just need to have confidence that if life happens and there's hiccups, the business owners act in good faith Mm. and will solve problems. So it sounds like Beck's already got a few recommendations, but if she wants to throw some people that you work with into the mix, does Beck just reach out to you? Yeah. Like, well, even she could just go to Sphere Home Loans, have a chat with them. Yeah. Like it's all good. And, you know, full disclosure, we run an ecosystem here. So we get a small fee out of what the brokers earn Mm -hmm. just as an introduction fee. And that's disclosed to everyone. Mm -hmm. That's one way that we make money here as a podcast. But more so than anything, there are some professionals that I refer people to that I don't get any money back from because I know it's the right fit. Mm. So if you don't want to use my system and all that, you don't have to. Yeah. That's fine. But, you know, there's conflicts in everything as long as they're disclosed and managed. So, yeah. So, Beck, if you have spoken to a couple of brokers and well, you've got a, a couple of word of mouth recommendations, just have a 10 minute phone call with each of them. Mm. Just go, hey, this is my situation. What's your process? How can you help? Easy. Quite the answer, wasn't it? Yeah, I sorry, thought I, I said, to, no, no, that's fine. I said to Jess before we press record, I'm like, oh, this first one will be take 10 seconds. But I think it's important for me to tell our regular listeners more so the reasons why I'm very strict on uh, self-promotion and recommendations in the Facebook group. Because if my name is attached to something, be it My Millennial Money and our Facebook group, I need to do the best that I can to make sure that people that come into our sphere are protected. Mm. Uh, And that's not saying if you're a broker or a financial advisor and you're not on my panel of recommended trusted people, I'm not saying you're terrible or rubbish or whatever. 
I'm just saying I know I can control my little patch of the earth and if people come to us for recommendations, well and truly on balance, people get looked after and have really good outcomes. Beautiful. Shall we move on? Let's move on. I'm going to read this question from Lisa, then I'm going to throw to you because I'm dying to know what you think of this. I feel like based on your eyes, <laughs> you've, got, you've got quite an answer, but sure. Lisa, hey guys, I'm wanting to set up my 19-year-old son, soon to be 20, with investing into Vanguard and just wanted to know, is it better to go through Comsec or to go directly to Vanguard? And which Vanguard type would you highly recommend and how much does he need to start out with? Is it $500? Could he have a small amount automatically coming out of his bank account every week to go into it, please? So Lisa wants to help her her baby out. I feel like you have a problem with this. <laughs> am I am I sensing that correctly? Ish. Mm. Ish. Why don't you go? Can I? Yeah, you, you go you first because I've got an This answer. is your show. Yeah, okay. Yeah, take okay. Over. I don't want to take over, but I can see it. This is the first time we've done face to face podcasts, and I can see it in mm. your eyes. So why don't you give your answer, and then I'll give mine. Yeah. So this is awesome. I love that she wants to help her son. Yeah. But if her son isn't engaged, yeah, what does it matter anyway? Like he's mm. a functioning adult. So what I'm probably saying is, Lisa. Hey, how are you? <laughs> what I would encourage Lisa to do is grab, um, say, my book. And Lisa, I'll send you a copy of my book to give to your son. As a peace offering. As a peace offering. Mm-hmm. What I would then probably say, and I don't know, like the son could be heaps keen to do it as well. Like I'm just reading this as the son's out living his life. And Lisa's like, I'm hearing all this stuff daily. Mm. I didn't do this at 19, so my son needs to do it, okay? What I'm probably doing is saying to the son, hey, read even these two chapters of Glenn's book or listen to the podcast or Equity Made, something else that isn't. Because it's the same when people say, how do I tell my parents to be better with money? It's like not happening. Mm. Then what I would say is, hey, son, you're 20 years old you've got a really good chance of like building wealth and being very wealthy. If you read this book, if you're interested in actually investing, I'll show you how and I will help you. My whole thing is I want the buy-in from him. Mm. That's what I want. There's some other layers here as well. Like if he's still living at home, Mm. you could do it. It's like, well, one of the conditions of you living here could be, for example, I don't need your rent, but we're setting up an investment account and your rent money is going into that. Like that's just a condition. If you, you're an adult, you want to live under my roof, sound like my dad, um, because it's you're an adult, this is our house and we're not going to charge you rent. But if you do want to live here at subsidized rates while you go through your apprenticeship or get through whatever, uh, 10% of your income, you know, because it could be studying or whatever, 10%, 20% of your income has to go into an investment account and I need you to be involved in this. Or we charge you rent and we spend it. Mm. I, like I do like this and I'm being a bit provocative with mm. like wants to help baby out. Yeah. Mm. But I, it is that we need the son to be bought in to the process somehow. But I, I do see the point as well. It's like 
if mum does set this up for him and it's his money and it's happening in the background, that's going to only be benefiting him because it's like forced savings and it's growing and all that and he could, you know, live his life and had the biggest party time ever and it's like, oh, yeah, thankfully mum like eight years ago set up this account for me. I had no idea what it was. Like I do get that. So, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, Lisa, we all wanted someone to sit us down at 19 and be like, hey, you need to start investing. So I agree with you. Like I think more parents need to have these conversations and I think the earlier the better. So Lisa, go and talk to all of your friends about this with their children as well because we need to start a grassroots Mm. sort of normalisation of talking about investing, especially for kids Mm. to help them learn about money so we can impact the next generation. I have no problem with her setting up that for her son. I totally understand that he needs to be on board. Mm. There is something quite nice though because you also have the risk that if he gets too involved when markets go down, you know, he's like becoming this sort of quasi day trader where he's looking at, you know, what's going on, et cetera. You can can go too far the other way. Mm. But I agree. He needs to know what's going on. We love educated investors. We like them knowing about dollar cost averaging. We like them about understanding, you know, peaks and troughs in the market and why that's not necessarily important if you're investing for the long, long term. Uh, There's some questions around sort of how do we do it? What are the costs? All the things. We can tackle some of those, but I love that she's thinking about it and I think it presents such an exciting opportunity for him in latter years and he'll be so grateful that she's actually thought of him because not many 19-year-olds are like, yeah, cool, will I just sit down and get my life sorted? Although I think more interested, which is great. So some questions just to directly answer specifically what's been called out, like which one to pick obviously as a financial advisor? It depends. I think what you're trying to figure out for your son is like, what's it for? How do we align this to a goal? What's the time horizon on the goal? Is this like for the really, really long term? Typically, that means that you can take a little bit more risk because you've got more time to ride out any fluctuations in the market. If you know when he's like 23 or whatever that he wants to pull it all out and, I don't know, do something with it, then obviously you don't have as much time. Therefore, you probably want to take less risk. But Vanguard have got a whole heap of different products based on sort of different risk profiles. And so that shouldn't be too hard once you figure out what the goal is and how much you want to regularly contribute and whether there's going to be enough based on, you know, how much you can put in and what the average annual return estimations are. The questions about whether you should go through CBA or go to Vanguard Direct, this becomes a fee question, I think, and how much more diversity you want beyond Vanguard, right? Well, and this is the, like, So the Vanguard, there's two kind of Vanguard things here. We've got the Vanguard Personal Investor Platform, which I would probably use over Comsec uh, because it is a platform and it's just consolidated tax reporting, set and forget, all that stuff. They don't do trade fees? I don't think they do trade Um, fees. I forget, but I think for their own ETFs, they don't. No brokerage fees. Yeah. So what I'm probably doing is even just keeping it really simple and just doing VAS the top 300 ASX companies. I like more diversified portfolios. But that's so do okay. I. Can differ. Yep. Yeah, but I'm just thinking more of that, the discussion when it does come up. And this is the whole thing why we need the kid involved mm. because we want him to know that, hey, you're invested just in Australian shares. That's okay. not perfect. Yeah, are you okay with that? But we need to, there's a bigger world than Australia. So I'm actually a big proponent in, if you are just getting started, investing in AE 200, the top 300, mm. is better than not investing at all. Totally. And it is diversified. So, mm. or you could just go down the route and just do the Vanguard Diversified High Growth Fund. Like you can do either, that's fine. But yeah, I'm, I'm probably thinking Vanguard's probably fine. Um, it needs to be in his name. You'll need his tax file number. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then and obviously from a tax perspective, he'll just need to be across sort of what that means. Mm. Um, and from what I can see on Vanguard, I haven't used the personal investor portal, but I think you can start with 500 bucks and I think you can make regular investments of like 200 bucks a fortnight or something like that. And again, yeah. to your point, setting up that regular strategy, be it for uh, lieu of rent or putting a portion of his income away himself, but just having it set up as an automation so that he doesn't muck it up himself, mm. I think is really important. And then if you want to get him to level up, Lisa... Maybe if he wants to think about chucking like 20 bucks a pay or five bucks, whatever he's got, into super because mm. he probably won't miss it, mm. future, future, future him will be pretty grateful for that as well. That's right. And it is – I – and the reason I think this is like so hashtag triggering for me mm-hmm. is because I always remember I had this client and he was in his 40s, yeah. right? He was a tradie. Mm-hmm. And he came to me for some advice. He couldn't do anything because he had to check with his mum. I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. Yeah, but I'm just like, at some point, you've got to actually leave the nest and, and this is completely different than a 19-year-old who might still be living at home, right? Yeah. But it was just this weird scenario that mum was the everything to do with my money and my life. No, nah, there's some sort of there's some sort of money block there. There's some sort there, of money memoir thing. Yeah, there. something's happened. There's, there's, there's just something the weird. There. There, there was just something weird there. It mm-hmm. just, and I get it. Like, yeah, check with other people that you trust and all that. But it was just some weird thing where maybe, and I had another friend where um, he's still living at home. He'd be forty now, single guy still living at home yeah. with his mum. Yeah, and I blame the mum for not letting her son grow up when he was. In his teens. Oh, on beh- if he's heterosexual, on behalf of all women in Australia who are mm. single, can you please help your sons grow up? Mm. <laughs> Let them cook, teach them to clean. Yep. We need you to. And his dad said to them. me once before, his dad passed away, and his dad said to me once, like, she never let him grow up. She didn't want a little boy to grow up. And now he's a four-year-old guy codependent on his mum. Which will and change I mean, in time. This yeah. is like so far removed from Lisa's question, but that's why it's just, I, I just see these. So you're triggered by that because you're like, oh gosh, this I've is just, like a precursor. Well, I've just seen things yeah. in real life that I don't think are healthy. Yeah. Um, but investing is, at 19 is healthy. Absolutely. It's amazing. That's right. So Lisa, I've got your Facebook post up now. I'm going to write uh, the team's email address, send me an email, I'll send a book, send me your son's name, let me personalise it. Mm. And even if he just reads chapters five and six, investing concepts, but we need him to be involved. And make it fun. Don't like force him to sit and read it like at nauseam because he will just disengage. And like, honestly, I'm totally, I know I was a bit wild and he needs to do it himself. Like I'm totally on board with this, Lisa, but I just need him to have some buy-in at some point. And I know you might be doing it now because he's he's not there. He's, you know, playing bass and that's all he cares about or whatever. But I know you're doing it to protect him and all that, but he needs buy-in. Otherwise, when he finds out about it, he might go, oh, yeah, sweet, you got that money. I'll just sell it and buy a new bass or something like that. Mm. Love bass players. Not don't, don't know if he is a bass player or not. <laughs> well, let's talk about Aaron's question. Aaron has a really good question. He says, what are the rules about renting out spare rooms in your house for passive income? Do we have to let the ATO know about it and get heavily taxed on the money and have it not really be worth it? 
or is there any way around it without paying tax? Mm. So this is one of those situations that are potentially grey. Check with the accountant. I'm not an accountant, but I'm right. That's the kind of disclosure. <laughs> I'm right that it's grey. <laughs> okay, so number one, this was tested in court in like the 80s and the way that I look at this situation, if you had a friend or family member who there was a short-term arrangement that they were literally boarding okay, and here's some cash, contribute towards the house and all that, that's fine. However, if you go down the road of I am charging someone and renting a room out and I would say a really good goalpost in your head would be have you advertised it at market rates mm. elsewhere? Do you know the person? Like if you don't know the person, you've advertised it at market rates, you're legitimately doing it to get money, mm. that's income all day long. Mm. And then what that means is you can then claim some of the expenses in the house proportionally on your tax return like power bill and all that stuff. You might claim a square meterage pro rata mortgage vibe payment. It's going to mess with your CDT cost mm. base at some point if you sell the home. But if you have someone in that's a boarder, could be a, a niece or nephew or someone studying, and I would generally say these boarding arrangements, they're not contractually bound. You don't have a rental contract. You're not taking a bond or whatever. Sure, that money can contribute to the household, but you can't then claim expenses for that border on tax. Yeah. And if Aaron had the person that they found on, I don't know, Flatmate Finders or whatever, are we, from a CGT perspective, do you know, are we getting the property valued the day before someone moves on in and the day after they move out to see what the difference was in the CGT sort of based on that change? Yeah. So the, the CGT thing is more about um, like, yeah, sure. If you got the house valued when they moved in and it was $800,000 or something like that. Mm. And then over the five years, you had that person in and we'll just call it number 25% of the expenses in the mortgage we're claiming on tax, right? Mm. When we go to sell it, even if it's worth a million dollars, right? 25% of that, which is the amounts that we've used along the way, are going to be treated as an investment property. So only 75% um, can be used for CGT free because it's your principal place of residence. And the... 50% discount would count as well, right? Yeah, but only on the yep. 75%, mm, Okay, I think. I don't know. We don't know. I'm not an accountant. This Neither is, am I, but that's, but that's the way that I would um, personally view it mm. and I'll get my own tax advice. Agree. Because um, more and more people are thinking about this now. Their mortgages have gone up and they're like, well... Yeah, actually, if you're an accountant, just put the right answer up in the Facebook group. Go, I heard Glenn and Jess crapping on about stuff they've got no idea about, which is basically every episode. No. Yeah. Let us know. We'd be interested because I think more and more people are genuinely going down this route and it'd be good to get some idea. And to be honest, like my house at Blue Bay, mm. for me, like when I lived there and it was my principal place of residence, right, mm. and that was always going to be a stepping stone house, like I'll never sell that house. It's good spot too. Like, yeah, it's right, you know, mm. prime location. If I did have a, a border in there that was paying me rent for the room – and then I declared that rent on my income and then proportionately declared um, the expenses percentage-wise as a 
deductible expense, mm. because I'm never selling that property, it doesn't actually matter anyway mm. because it was a stepping stone property to my next one. And mm. Yeah, so, so that's yeah. something to think about too. Yeah, so that's what I, I really think and yeah, I legitimately would like to know from accounting land if the way I've suggested the CGT issue does plan, pay out play out, pan out, whatever, um, is based on the proportions that you've claimed along the way. Because mm. in my mind, that makes sense. But a lot of my, a lot of things that make sense in my mind that aren't real. <laughs> All right. We'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the community segment of the week where we ask you provocative, weird, funny, engaging questions in the Facebook group. That's where we hang out every single week, every single day. That's the core community. And we can't do this section without skywealth.com.au forward slash MMM. If you want to make sure your wealth stays intact, if you do have a family uh, with debt, you've got to make sure you've got death cover. Uh, we're really vocal here about protecting things that matter most. And you can do that with income protection and all the insurances from skywealth.com.au forward slash MMM, complimentary 15 minute discussion, and they can point you in the right direction. We asked you, what's the most unexpected expense you've encountered and how did you handle it? Do you have any of those? Unexpected? Oh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in an infrared sauna mm. and noticed something. I thought my shoulder blade was like popped out. And mm. I was like, why is my shoulder blade there? It wasn't my shoulder blade. I had this thing emerge oh, from my shoulder. From the deep. It was really gross. Anyway, it was an annoying, expensive surgery that got done within a week. Was it a cyst or something? It was this. Ganglion? Or? <laughs> they call it a lipoma, oh. which is just like, I think... A ball of fat. Oh, I've actually got one of them. Oh, you can't really see it on my leg. But it looked like I was starting to grow another yeah. like, head. It was really awful. Anyway, because I wanted it out mm. and I was going away and so mm. I basically paid overs to get it out quickly and I did it with my GP who I think is like a cosmetic surgeon mm. on the side. Really strange. It was like two and a half grand out of pocket, unexpected from this little lump that I found on the Thursday, taken out on the Tuesday. Wow. Yeah. Gosh. Also, I have a dog. 
Yes. That has unexpected expenses written all over it. Anyway. What does Marnie say? Oh, Marnie. And this is this is something that I think a lot of people have had and it's quite a shock when you see how expensive stuff is. So Marnie says $8,000 for a bare bones funeral and cremation for my mum. Just had to take it out of personal savings and emergency fund. They charged me a $900 inconvenience fee because she died on a Sunday. The whole funeral industry makes me sick. Marnie, firstly, awful and I'm so sorry. My uncle passed away three years ago and I went with my dad to the place and they show you, I don't know if this is all of them, they show you this like booklet of all the different coffins Mm. and the first coffin was $9,000 and I reckon, Glenn, they do that because people are so traumatised and sad that people just see the coffin, it becomes really real and they're like, oh my God, this is too much, just that one and move on. And thankfully, my uncle had already given us instructions, which is similar to mine, which is, can we have the cheapest coffin ever? But they do, they get you because you're emotionally vulnerable and it makes me sick too, Marnie. I hate it. I think I saw a coffin at Costco the other day. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you can get them for two grand. But like two grand? Oh, just put me in a cardboard box. Put me in a cardboard box and spend more money on champagne Mm. because I'm being cremated anyway. Yeah. Anyway, that was a shite, um, unexpected expense, poor money. And convenience fee. I mean, just if you're the funeral home, just bury that in the other costs. Like, don't highlight it because I don't know when a convenient time to die is. No, me neither. I mean, convenient for them on a Monday at 2pm because everyone's working. But anyway, that's rubbish. Mm. Helene, twins, I haven't. It's still a struggle. She still hasn't recovered and handled it. I mean, I get that. Uh, Matt. Sold a block of land, market had crashed, owed more than it was worth. Oh, dear. Bank said I could sell it for X and have the remaining funds to go as an ongoing loan. They calculated repayments, etc. Sold the block, settlement came. ANZ head office phoned me and asked how I would like to pay the remaining amount owing. Explained what my local bank had told me, but then I was told that I was lied to and that it doesn't work that way. So, $27,000 later, I had to pay out the remaining loan. Fortunately, I just worked for two years on a high-paying construction project, so had the money hurt like hell and something I'll never forget. Always mm. cautious now. Mm. Sean, I had a mate who got hit with a 200k special levy one month after buying an apartment for a building, facelift, balconies, everything. What? Super dodgy, like an existing issue that seemed like everyone in the block was knew was coming. Okay, just I'm. You need to look when before you buy into older buildings. You need to go through all the AGMs for the last five years because yeah. that would have been coming up. Like that's not a surprise. Would that anyway. have come out in the reporting that you buy before you? Oh, I don't know. In the, I haven't purchased any older apartment strata things, Neither. but I almost did for my first home. And I went to the strata um, manager's office and they had the file there for the whole complex. Mm. And I just sat in the meeting room and I just looked through it all. Mm. Um yeah, that's wild. But it's not wild. even just older ones. Like I had a client who bought in Sydney one of the newer ones and they had that shit cladding on it. Mm. And so that was a, I think that was a $40,000 special levy because they had to rip all the pretty new mm. cladding because it no longer fit mm. regulation and put it all on. So yeah, that's a really expensive mistake. So for those who don't know, you know, what we talk about special levy with strata buildings, like you pay kind of two amounts each quarter. The first amount 
is just for the administration fund. So it could be like the gardeners, the window cleaners, the common area cleaners, just Elevator security. Repairs, whatever. Yeah, just general repairs and maintenance. Mm. And then there's a sinking fund or capital works fund payment, which every year they look and say, okay, well, this building will need to be repainted in five years. It's going to cost $300,000. Everyone needs to contribute X amount a quarter to build up that sinking fund. And when you are looking to buy an apartment or a strata building, you need to make sure that that sinking fund isn't in deficit. There's plenty of meat. So, and then special levy, something that comes up that is either urgent, unexpected, or a big maintenance thing that there isn't money in the singing fund. So the strata committee puts on a special levy to all the residents to have to pay. And so if you see an apartment for sale and it looks like an amazing deal and no one's buying it, that might be a red flag for you to look into Mm. whether there's something coming. What did Paige say? Oh, Paige, leaving my ex and then some emojis. Well worth it, but at the same time, stressful situation due to not having a cash buffer and pulling my shares out just to live. Mm. Mm. And I mean, this is why we all should have personal emergency savings because we want to be able to get out Mm. and be okay. And it's good that you had shares, Paige, that you could live off. She, $17,000 vet bill. Told you. Spent holiday savings and emergency fund. This was December 19. So we're glad we didn't book the holiday anyways planned. Mm-hmm. Like you're a you know a mother of doggy. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have a mental threshold? Like, I love dogs. No, babe, I know where this is going. Yeah, go. Okay, all right, all right. So, if there was, do you have pet insurance? Yeah. Yes. Like, do you have a threshold as like, if there was a twenty thousand dollar quote for an an issue that you're like, I'm actually sorry, I can't do that. I think this is all relative to someone's budget, right? So $20,000 to one person is an enormous amount of money. And then for other people, it might Mm. not hit that hard. Mm. So it's all relative. Pet insurance is really interesting because obviously I come from an insurance background. So Mm. like fine print's my Mm. my jam on this stuff. So one day when my puppy, well, when she was a puppy, she bloody ate this toy that had a squeaker in it. And so I took her down to the emergency vet at Sydney Uni, Mm. and they quoted me six grand if she was going to have to have this emergency surgery, right? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, fine. I've got pet insurance. How does this work? And they were like, you pay it up front and then you have to go back and back claim. So having pet insurance can be really helpful because obviously it can cover some or all of it. Yeah, maybe 85%. But I was a bit Mm. surprised that you have to cough up the cash straight away and then you go back and sort of, I guess, fight it out with the insurer. So you also just need to make sure that if you've got a pet, and something happens, you've got cash on hand. Because I thought to myself, do what happens if people don't have six grand mm. on hand? Like, do they just leave the dog to? I mean, she had something. And thankfully, they got it out. But like, that's an emergency. Well, you have to do something straight away. I situation. think realistically, if if someone didn't have the money, mm. and it would happen so much, the vets would like be literally like, hey, because and this is the whole thing, like. Vets, they're not charities. They're running a business as well. Mm. And we don't want people to work for free because if they did that for everyone, they're just not happening. Mm. I'm sure there's cases where vets would do some pro bono stuff. But like they might come to the stage where it's like, hey, this is a very costly thing. This is your option. Or unfortunately, we may have to put the pet to sleep. So two things. 
I got puppy. I got pet insurance when my dog was like eight weeks old, and thank Christ I did because she's had all of these mm. bloody medical issues. She'd never get pet insurance for those things again. Mm. Um, secondly, can we start some sort of Medicare system for <laughs> pets and like everyone who has a pet contributes because I think we need it with the amount of pets people are having these days and the fact that people are getting older and you know just in more vulnerable positions and may not have the money to be able to splash out when this happens. Anyway, how do we start that petition? Well, technically. That is pet insurance. Everyone who has a pet contributes to the pool. <laughs> yeah, from an insu- yeah, but 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 like so many people don't have it. It really surprises yeah. me. Some of my friends who are on good incomes, they're yeah. like, nah, just never got around to it. And I'm like, oh god. No, nah, you've got to do it. Um, so anyway, we'll bounce out of this section. Thank you to Sky Wealth. Make sure you get your pet insured and also your own insurance, your life and income insurance, skywealth.com.au. Have a 15-minute chat with them and they'll point you in the right direction. Radio, not much housekeeping um, far out. It's the Phil Sky Wealth segment. Following the episode that I did within the last month with Phil from Sky Wealth, uh, there was a lot of questions. We did a deep dive podcast about insurance. Phil and the team from Sky, they're putting together just another webinar uh, because people have lots of questions and you can do that. It's on Tuesday, the 14th of November. There's a link in the show notes to that uh, and they'll just you know go through all the different things that you need to consider. Right. Bridie? Bridie. Hello, everyone. After everyone's opinions, is there any investment that is on par with buying a home? Like if I choose to put money into stocks, riskier, yes. Or is property still the wisest investment? I'll hand that to you. Hmm. I mean, there's some built-in assumptions here that property is the bestest investment option for you, which I don't know if that's always the case. I think it's important to figure out like, what do you want it for, Bridie? Like, what are we building wealth just for wealth? Are we building wealth for security and you want to have a home that you live in or you want to have investment properties or, you know, you're pulling it out in a few years so that you can, I don't know, do something fun with it? Because really these are different types of asset classes and whilst they are both considered growth assets, there's pros and cons to both of them. And so a terrible investment property is not better than a share portfolio. So I I think it really depends. Obviously, we get more diversification if we're invested in stocks, assuming that we're investing in a lot of different ones. Uh, When you've got property, though, you get leverage uh, because you're, you know, presumably borrowing. And so any growth on that's on the higher borrowed amount. But I think we have to stop saying that property is like the the best because it's not always the best. No. Agree? Absolutely agree. Yeah. So, if we break down, because I like breaking down comments and questions line by line. All right. Is there an investment that is on par with buying a home? Well, if you look at 101, the rule book on buying a home that you live in, you are consuming that. That's theoretically not an investment because by the book, an investment produces an income and appreciates in a capital way. Sure, your home can appreciate in a capital way and longer term, it is better to own where you live because you'll over time pay less um, and then when you stop working, you don't have to pay accommodation costs. So there's that. So yeah, first you've got to go, what is an investment to you? And to me, an investment is something that produces an income. Do I think buying gold is an investment? I personally don't think it is. I think it's a hedge strategy. It's a parking money because gold doesn't produce an income. Yeah. So that's just my thing. Like if I choose to put money into stocks, and as you said, like my rant at the start of the episode, 
so many people all over suburbs in Australia are buying homes in the same suburb as where they live just because of this home bias, some type of, I live here, it's really good, I really love it. That's awesome for a lifestyle point of view. Mm. But as in, if we're allocating money to actually invest and grow for the future, is the next street from you the most appropriate place to grow your wealth? Not sure. A lot of the times it's not. Mm. And what's more risky? And this is so wild, Jess, like how many times do you hear and see people They'll get the heebie-jeebies, go buy an investment property in the same suburb, street next door, get so excited about it. We're going to renovate and all that. But they have an aneurysm when trying to pick what brokerage platform or what investment platform do I choose to put my $5,000 or $1,000 in? Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's something out of whack here. Because we've created this cultural norm Mm. where we've put property at the top of the pedestal Mm. and we've said, we financial services people have said for a really long time, shares and equities and everything is very complicated. Come to us, we can do it for you. And so we are having to re-educate people that there are lots of different ways to build wealth. There's no one perfect way because everyone is different. Everyone's situation is different, but thinking that one is definitely better than the other. Like I've watched people make terrible property investment decisions Mm. and I've watched people make amazing property decisions Same thing with shares. So I feel like I'm not really answering the question. Also, the point around stocks being riskier, Mm. why? Because of the volatility along the way? Like imagine if you could at the front of every house every week or every day see the actual price of it. Yeah. I can tell you people would not be buying houses. Yeah, because we don't see – you're right. That that volatility is Mm. sort of invisible unless you're checking domain.com every day and and tracking it. So I would hypothesise if – and let's take mortgage and leverage off the table right now, right? What is more – and everyone at home can answer this question in your own mind. If I had $800,000, okay, Mm. cash – what is more risky to me to buy one $800,000 investment property Mm -hmm. or for me, even back to our discussion, just to put $800,000 in IOZ, A200, top 200 companies in Australia, what is more risky? Dun, dun, dun. We're going to let them answer it. Everyone can answer it in their own mind. If you don't have a mind because you're busy actually having a life and working while you listen to podcasts and all that, <laughs> or if you're me, you don't have a mind, let's look at it. Property, did you choose the right location? Did you choose the right asset? Mm. Did you choose the right tenant? Mm. Can you get it tenanted? Can you get an income consistently? Mm. You've got a lot of risk that your income from that asset is based on someone keeping their job and paying rent. So we've got constant, what we call concentration risk, where you've sort of got Greg Every, yeah. being the house in, a, in one basket. Yeah. And so if that goes down to the point before about the person who had that land where they had to sell it and they sold it at a loss, you've got what's called negative equity. Mm. Um, but the other thing around property too, you know, I want to be sort of impartial and give the pros and cons for each. You know, there's, there's great opportunity because of leverage in time to then be able to potentially borrow against some of that equity that you've created and use that to diversify into other shares and stocks as well. So I think, Bridie, come back to like, what is it for? What do you need? To Glenn's point, 
Diversification in investing is like 101. You have to think about it. And buying in the same street, suburb, et cetera, is not diversified. Um, and so there isn't a clear winner here. And I think you just need to figure out what's what's important. To you. Do you reckon there is a clear winner? Do you reckon it's not property? Okay. No, no, no. So I get what you're saying, but you're saying the right things because of the considerations. But if we don't deviate from my simple example, yeah. what's more yeah. riskier? Yeah, it's the property. One property yeah. or 200 companies, there is a clear winner. Yeah. So, but this is where mm-hmm. personal finance, it's annoying. It all depends. Mm. And really? would you rather risk 800000 on one asset, potentially one household income or 200 different companies, different sectors, different markets, and one thing people don't talk about that much in investing circles is liquidity. Mm. I don't know, guys. I don't know. But yes, it's a, it's a good chat to have. What do you think playing at home? Yell out in the bus right now. Hey, everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, let's finish up with a question today from Mikey. Mm. Now, this is a bit of fun. I think it's a bit of fun. Millennials. Hello. How are you, Governor? I have a hypothetical situation for you. You are also mm. the problem with this is my problem with property in Australia. <laughs> Go back, yeah. Some more. I need to be careful. Properties more and more in Australia becoming a wealth creation vehicle than a basic accommodation. Human need, yeah. Mm, that's what I. That's think. your comment. Yeah. Yeah, and I get that, and and we've and there are a lot of young people who are really anti landlords because of it, because mm. obviously we have really shitty laws for renters, etc. But I think you can you can be a good landlord if you are one. Um, but someone's you, we've got to live somewhere. And I think that gets missed a lot mm. in the conversation around shares v property, especially if security is really important to you. Yeah. You know, I have a good friend and he and I fight it out all the time because he has no interest in property, mm. which is fine. And we have like good banter about it. And I'm like, yeah, but you got to live somewhere. It's, we've all got to live somewhere. Mm. Anyway. Well, it's the reason why it gets up my goat is it is actually categorically like I got a thing on my phone the other day. I think I bought my first home nine years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So I was, what, 30. Okay. It's a million times harder today for a 30-year-old. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that way. I've got friends that they're early 30s, mid 30s, all that, two really good incomes on the central coast. Like I'll be okay with that vibe, you know, Sydney, capital city, Melbourne, capital city, you know, most people – of us working class people, we can't buy in London, we can't buy in yeah. LA, we can't buy in, like it's mm. an international capital city. Sorry, capitalism, baby, all that. It's just you need to have money to buy. But when we're talking two hours, an hour, three hours out of a capital city, if people who are in their 30s, late 20s with good incomes, good deposits, can't get a flipping home to buy to live in, that's a problem. Huge, huge problem. And I personally, I get a lot of crap for owning property, but guess what, everyone? If you want a successful hair growth podcast, don't listen to me on a podcast about hair growth. If you want a successful weight loss podcast, don't listen to me on a weight loss podcast. 
on a money podcast, you're thankful that I've got some money and I know what I'm doing half the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of, you know, but I've personally, because I've done quite well financially, Mm. I literally messaged my broker the other day and said, is there any way that I can go guarantor for a friend for their first home? I think the answer is no. And the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got all this equity that I don't need. Yeah. It's crazy. Now I don't, you know, you can get philosophical. Why don't you sell the property and give people 200 grand or whatever? No, get a grip. But like, I'm just thinking if there is a, a lender out there who can say, look, we're happy to do a, a guarantee. We don't really care or I don't know, because why couldn't I use some of the equity that I don't need to help a first home buyer? It comes with a lot of caveats, right? Because if your friends don't do the mortgage, there's problems for you down the line. So like comes with risk and might start yeah. up some friendships if they don't go to, to plan. But I accept that that's a really small risk for the reward of potentially a lot of people being able to get into a mm. market that's increasingly challenging. Yeah. So that's kind of back to Miki's question. Sorry. <laughs> I think we got halfway through the first line. And yeah. Then and then I was like, it. yeah. We shouldn't be allowed together. I don't know how we're allowed to do this. Um, I have a hypothetical situation. You're in your 30s. You have a steady but low slash mid income, no credit card debt. Awesome. You don't own a property or a car. You have a reasonable hex debt. You don't have much super saved and you already have an emergency fund set up. Awesome. Someone hands you 25 grand today. What would you do with it to build more wealth? Do you split it up into a few avenues or do you go all in on something? Dun, dun, dun. I loved some of the answers in this. Yeah, it was great. There were some good ones. Uh, I don't know what a reasonable hex debt is. I would say 30. Right. 40. Okay. Mm, isn't that scary? If you do 10 grand a year. Mm. So do you want me to go first or you want to go first? I want you to own this. Um, unlike many of the suggestions in the answers, I don't think we should spend it all on traveling or buying a van or doing all those fun things. Although they sounded really fun. If it was to land in your lap, I think you should be very respectful of just how much money it is because it can be easy when you, you know, people get a bonus or people inherit amount of money to sort of see it as free cash and not think about how long it would actually take for you to get that amount of money in your hand. So a lot of people sometimes ask me how to do a tax return. And so I've come up with like a bit of a bit of a way. A tax refund, sorry. Tax refund, sorry, yes. not a return. Don't get, clearly by my accounting knowledge, yes. don't get me to do tax <laughs> returns. Um, here's like a general vague rule. You can do it however you like. I always say 50% of the money to long, long-term goals, be it, you know, passive investments in your personal name, maybe some of it towards your super, I don't know, debt reduction if you've got a home loan, whatever. But I think about 50% long, long-term youth, we're calling that futuring. You're looking after long-term youth. Then 30% on things that are going to be good for here and now because I think it's unrealistic. And obviously this is dependent on how much it is. It's unrealistic to say, spend it all on long, long view. It doesn't work. I've tried it. People are like, sorry, we accidentally booked a holiday or we bought a thing and now we don't have any left. Mm. So maybe it's that you go and figure out how strategically you can do it to have the best experiences if that's what you value or whatever. And then I like to use the rest and you can obviously twist these and split them up to invest in you. So what is a course that you could do that gets you a higher income or 
you know, job opportunities or whatever. So I think this is a really nice mix between looking after future, future you, having some fun now so that you don't feel like you're depriving yourself and then bursting, you know, the banks and spending it all, but investing in yourself and seeing yourself as an asset who potentially over time is able to earn more. Uh, I think that's often underplayed and very important. Mm. And that's why we wrote the career book. Yeah. Like you are the best investment. You're the goose that lays the golden egg. Yup. Just an idea. Would you pay off hex debt if you had a windfall like this? Is it windfall or windfall? Don't know. Windfall? Just say it fast. No one knows. Hey Siri, is it windfall or windfall? Oh, with a D, I think. Yeah, because I think it was like a windmill or something. It's currently cloudy in 25 degrees. (laughs) Siri does not vibe me. Hey Siri, is the saying windfall or windfall. I'm pretty sure it's wind. We've gone rogue over here. Anyway, sorry everyone for activating your Siri. <laughs> um, so the, the hex one's a really interesting one based on what they're indexing it at at the moment. What was last year? Like, well, this year 7.1. 7. Yeah. Uh, but debt dies with you when it's hex. Mm. So I think, you know, if you're considering putting it in investments, there is a conversation around, you know, is the average return going to even meet what the indexation is? And how much, because you're on a lower income, and this drives me mad, because, you know, the thresholds of how you can pay it off at the moment, what you're finding is a lot of young people or people are on lower mid-income. Yeah, they're not getting there. They're not, they're going around in circle. In Mm. fact, their hex is growing. And so definitely look at those tables because you don't want your hex to grow. So that is definitely something to think about. A couple of things, windfall. Um, With a D? Yeah, an unexpected gain, peace or good fortune or the like, something blown down by the wind uh-huh. as fruit does. Ah. Uh-huh. Oh. So it's windy, unless fruit it, falls. Unless a coconut falls on your head and kills you, that is not a good mm. windfall. On the hex thing, I'm a little bit contrarian-esque with oh, yeah. this 7.1%. Think it's peaked? Number one, it, I think it's peaked. Agree. Yeah. Number two, and this is people who have had hex or help debt for over five years, okay? If you've, if you've just got it in the last 12 months and you've just got the first 7.1, I'm sorry. And I've got, you know, love and I get you. But everyone else, go and have a look at the hex and help debt indexation table over the last 10 years. You've basically paid nothing. But we were in it. A period of very low interest rates. Mm-hmm. We were in very low, we were in normal sort of inflation cycles and they're saying, what, 2024, 2025, we'll get back? Mm-hmm. I guess that's the risk that you got to take. No, but I'm saying don't get outraged this one year at 7.1 oh, yeah. where if you had hex and help debt five years ago and you're paying 0.1. You are doing good. you like, shut up. Mm. <laughs> like, just step back and have a look on balance over the last five years and that's why I wasn't too worried about people rushing to pay it off before the 7% if you'd had it for a long time because you've actually had a pretty good run. I just think there should be an indexation freeze if you aren't meeting the payment thresholds because it's just growing. I think that's crazy. And that was thrown out of what the Senate, but the Greens put it forward earlier this year and it got blocked and didn't go any further. And I think that's crap. Anyway, just some political Mm. commentary over here. Yeah, that would be a good idea. Yeah. Like if you actually can't, if you don't meet a threshold... Even say if your taxable income is under 70 grand. Yeah. It shouldn't keep going up. Because if you're, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But what I would probably do, have you finished what you would do with that? Because I want to say what I want. Yeah, go. That's mine. So number one, Miki, the question is, do you have a driver's license and 
is there a need for a car in the foreseeable future? So you don't own a property or a car. If you have a driver's license and you've temporarily moved to the city and you sold a car or whatever and you're 30 years old, what I'm probably doing is just straight up carving out 15, 10 to 15 grand in a separate savings account and just calling it car. What? Mm. Oh my gosh, we fiercely disagree about this. Why? Because at some point, and this is why you just need to have a look, if at some point in the next two to three years, you're going to need a car, mm. just go and buy one. Obviously, all relative to where you live. Like Central yeah, that's, Coast, that's, you can't have a that's life right. without a car. That's right. But I it, have a go-get membership. Couldn't think of anything worse than owning a car. That's right. And that's why I want, you need to know, one, I ask, do you have a license? Because there's, I know people that live in the city, mm. in here and in Melbourne, who don't own a car and don't have a license. Mm. They'll probably always live around or get, go get and all that. So that's what I had to carve that out. Like if you think you may move out of the city or something in the next, you know, two to three years, I'm putting 10 to 15 grand aside and just labeling it, labeling a car. I respect your decision. What are you doing with the rest of it? Then we'll call it the other 10 grand or the other 15, right? Mm. Let's put 10 for a little secondhand Corolla or something like that. Mm. The next 15, all I kind of do is go back to that 101 financial planning, the G word. Goals. Goals. Yeah. Like if you've had a bit of a like, oh, I just would love to buy a house one day. I would like, they've said don't own a property. I don't know if that is, I'd like one or um, it just goes back to your goals. Like if you're like, oh, I'd really love to go to Prague. Mm. All right, well, go to Prague. And that's sort of why I was saying the split between like the 50 and the mm. 30, because I find 50% is like the long, long, long term goals, yep. which never get the attention and effort mm. and energy that they often need. And then that sort of 20 or 30, depending on which split you take, is normally like more of the shorter term goals, like going on the holiday yep. or buying a pet or whatever. Yeah. Because short term goals always tend to get priority because of how our brains work. Yep. We've got to try to get the mix right. Um, what would you do with it to build more wealth? You wouldn't buy a car then. Well, if you had to drive to work. Well, yeah. And you lived you did in a regional city. Was, yeah, all right. And being a city privileged person, I you get are. it. You so, are. Back off. So, so, so. Um, to build more, like... The reality is, in this day and age, twenty-five grand dropping into your lap is really going to help in the short term. It's not going to hugely move the needle and turn you into a millionaire overnight. Mm. So what we need to do, we just need to get really practical. Yeah. And it's like, okay, what are our goals? We've got 25 grand. This is an opportunity. Sure, carve out a couple of grand, go to Prague. Sure, carve out a couple of grand, buy a car if you need it. Or what you could do as well throw it into super, get on with your life. Pay off your hex, get on with your life. Like there's no, you can't wreck it. That's what I'm saying, unless you spend it all. On nothing. On nothing. Yeah. Or as we were saying up front, what course could you do to improve your career opportunities? And that's the gift that keeps giving. Yeah. Just like investing. Yeah. So I don't know. So helpful. We are so We don't know. (laughs) Do what you want. So much help. But that's what I mean. Like it goes back to what I've been saying lately, as in last week, I think I did one Instagram reel on it. You can only earn money once if you trade your time for money. So like eight-hour workday, you can only do that once. You can only spend money once. So if you put that 25 grand on a holiday, guess what? One and done. No more. But what you can do if you invest that money, 
it will never be spent. It will breed. It will keep going. If you put it towards a home deposit, it will never be lost. But you just need to know you can only spend money once. And there's an opportunity cost as well, which often is hidden. Mm. All right. Uh, as Jeff on Survivor would say, i got nothing else for you. Get your stuff and get back to camp. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. You can find Jessica Brady Financial Advice on Instagram. Smack that follow button. What's your tag? Uh, Jess Brady underscore financial advice. Smash that like button. <laughs> or jessicabrady.com.au is my website. Smash that search button. <laughs> Smash. No, it's the follow button. Like is YouTube. Smash and comment that like thing. All right, I'm done. We should have had no coffees before we started this podcast. No. We'll try not to next time. All right. Thanks, friends. It's been real. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. 